Yuki Chords. Today on the show of Kip Poke Interviews Friends, I've got my friend Riley, and he's going to tell us all about the Winnipeg General Strike and a lot of other very interesting, cool things. Here we go. Hey, Riley, what's up? How much are you? Good, I'm good. How's your... How's been your last few days, I guess? Question. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad at all. I was having fun uh, the other night when it was like 18, 20 degrees. Oh, that was a gorgeous day. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you doing, like, right now? Just, like, going to school? <laughs> yeah, writing a little bit for Canadian Dimension. What's just that? living at my parents. Oh, nice. Free fridge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fills itself up. What's Canadian Dimension? It's a left-wing uh, magazine that was founded in Winnipeg in 1963 by Saigonic, who I think taught at the UW. It was just, it's a magazine. It's online now. It used to be in print, but it it's just a place where you can find writing on socialist politics. And you're an expert in this. No, but I don't know. I guess they need writers, so. <laughs> <laughs> what do you write about mostly? I've written three articles, well, I have four articles, three recently, mostly about uh, the labor movement. And one was about free schools in the United States and actually there was there was a few in Winnipeg as well so I talked about those what's a free school well it was uh, tied to a Spanish educator named Francisco Ferrer nice name yeah and uh, he had a school called Escuela Moderna in Barcelona in 1901 it was you know, it's a little different than kind of what one might think about when one hears the word free school, but it has some similarities as well. The kind of real distinguishing factor was the educational philosophy of trying to put oneself on the same level as the students and encourage them to learn based on uh, wanting to learn rather than being coerced into learning or you know having these types of impose structures on kids and stuff so it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, thing to read about it at times it's it's really uh heartwarming like there's some really nice quotes like uh instead of giving them the birch rod they gave them love and stuff like that so a little heartwarming oh <laughs> yeah yeah i guess in 1901 they would have just you know meter sticked everybody yeah that's that's also what's kind of interesting is uh the contrast to European education and also residential schools because these were pretty woke schools happening at the same time so you can't just say that it, people who, who were involved in residential schools were a product of the times because the times in some cases were actually very progressive yeah there, I've, I guess that's a very good point not everything yeah. was bad all the time 
Yeah, and there were um, there were a lot of anarchists involved in in the modern school movement, like Emma Goldman and uh, a few of her contemporaries. So that's point of interest for me: uh, anarchism or libertarians, socialism, something I'm interested in. And and there were uh, there were socialist, anarchist, Marxist schools, or you know, schools run by all types of different leftists operating out of the Liberty Temple on, uh, on uh, Isabel, no, on Salter, and uh, just, just past the Robin's Donuts in the North End. Okay, yeah. Um, and actually, that building still still exists. Um, and the craziest alumni, or most interesting, was uh, Kitty Harris, who came out of, so it was called the Arbiter Ring School. And she lived in Winnipeg between 1905 and 19. 19- 23 she became the secretary of the one big union during the general strike married the uh general secretary of the communist party american communist party was a key figure in soviet espionage networks and played a role in penetrating the manhattan project which developed the atomic bomb whoa she had a she had a book written about her called kitty harris the spy with 17 names and she went to school in northern Wow, that is cool. I was actually <laughs> really surprised about all the people that come out of Winnipeg, or like the yeah. little histories of Winnipeg. Yeah, that one really caught my attention. I was reading that in some random book. I guess at that time also it was like a boom town, so <laughs> kind of like a center. It's kind of like yeah. the center of North America. Well, it still is, but like less figurative. Yeah. running for mayor and he one of his platforms was going to be to pan, uh, jam the Panama Canal because <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that had something to do with like the decline of Winnipeg as a uh, you know future Chicago of the north or whatever yeah because the Panama Canal became the, the major trading route as opposed to um, everything going through Winnipeg on trains which is he's right but so you know I, I voted for Ed Ackerman you know you gotta gotta support the uh, fringe candidates but he was really the only leftist candidate at the time and he also had that he wanted to renegotiate Treaty 1 which um, was like he just had some pretty wild platforms but that one's actually I think I was reading about Treaty 1 and I think that's actually consistent with like I think that the idea well I was reading it for an indigenous legal traditions class and the book was the book was uh Breathing Life into the Stone Fort Tree with M.E. Craft. That was author, and she was arguing that treaties are not frozen in time. And, uh, and they so shouldn't be. That was funny because Ed Ackerman was kind of having this really progressive uh, interpretation of treaties that they should be renegotiated and reaffirmed. So, Ed Ackerman, if only we could go back in time and elect a mayor. Yeah, you know, I get his mail sometimes, so. <laughs> He's got an interesting documentary about him called Special Ed. Yeah, my friend's dad uh, made that. I haven't oh, seen cool. it, but um, it's really good. Yeah, he's a he's an interesting character. One time, um, because his um son used to live beneath me. One time he because we get like all the old mail from like old tenants, 
One time he just like <laughs> took all the old mail and like gave it to the postman and he was like, you have to take this back. And the postman was like, no, I don't want to. And he's, he's like, that's the rules. You have to take it back. <laughs> he knows his rights. Yeah, so it was, that was interesting. <clears throat> How are the pancakes going? Uh, I don't know if I have a gluten intolerance or something because those those pancakes I made really really derailed my Saturday last week. That can happen with but pancakes. It really is just a cup and a half of flour and an egg and some milk. So if you know if you didn't cook it, it would be a really really weird thing to eat for breakfast. <laughs> you can only really you should only eat like one little one, I think. Well, it's like, it's definitely like a Depression era food or something. Like, it's invented from there. Like, this is all we got. Mm -hmm. Let's fry it. (laughs) The syrup was a nice touch, but the real importance was just treating myself a little bit that Saturday. Yeah, well, you have to do that. That's what Saturdays are for. Yeah. And every other day. That's too much. Did you uh, have a good summer? Yeah, yeah, the summer was was great. Uh, I was just like going to the beach and chilling out, uh, reading. Yeah, it was was nice. I uh, did a couple. Sorry, do you want to talk me to talk about like? specifically labor history stuff or whatever you want to talk about I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear labor history okay um yeah one thing we did in the summer was uh took out some some tours some uh, historical tours on on bicycle to different uh buildings and locations that were significant during the Winnipeg general strike of 1919 and that was a project that I worked on with the um mechanical director from the wrench, Jeff Heath, and a member of the local Winnipeg IWW, Pat McGuire, and then uh, the son of a really well-known labor historian. Uh, The labor historian's uh, name is Nolan Riley, and his son's name is Daryl. So we all made this uh, pamphlet with funding from the Manitoba Federation of Labor and from the wrench, and possibly from the bike dump uh, if we can uh, get the funds together but it's supposed to be a self-guided tour that would uh, be in addition to the the kind of uh, there's there's some other pamphlets that were released during the centenary of the general strike that are like really well done mm-hmm. and ours is kind of a little more DIY but the two of them go together so that in theory you can you can do it on your own but we also do guided tours and so we did a few of those on bike because uh, Nolan Riley, that historian, was saying um, that he thought that would be the, actually the best way of doing those tours because he he's always led them by by bus or or on walking tours. Mm-hmm. Oh, bike. So uh, yeah, yeah. I'm we started the works head out. I'm just thinking that sounds like a really good kind of like a date you could go on, you know. <laughs> 
definitely yeah um and it's it's covid friendly like more or less uh i was gonna do one a couple weeks ago but then that was kind of when the numbers were really booming up so we decided to and i was getting cold too so yeah that makes sense we decided to get a rain check but um so do you yeah, just... people seem people seem interested it's like a good Saturday activity uh you know people's parents always looking for something to do that's a little active you know get your fitbit out and educational and um so just curious do you go and like look at buildings where things happened or like locations and then there's yeah. like write-ups about like the incidents that happened there Stuff like yeah that. yeah so uh like there'll be there'll be a paragraph or a paragraph and a half on each of the sections in the pamphlet and then when you're on a guided tour the tour guide will usually kind of offer their own take and it usually goes on for much longer than a paragraph and a half because uh i think not just labor historians but people who study history have a hard time reining it in <laughs> so <laughs> we usually try to keep the tour to three hours but sometimes we've had two and a half hours and other times like if we did the whole tour that we had in the pamphlet it would take well over three hours so you know it's kind of like it's interesting to us but we gotta make sure that people aren't getting bored so we we usually don't go to all the stops but we go to some of the most interesting ones i mean if you're passionate about anything you're gonna go on a yarn about it it's just normal yeah yeah exactly one of the stops i do is the it's called the labor cafe um and there were three different locations one was the strathcona hotel they stayed there for 10 days so it was like a food kitchen for for striking for strikers particularly striking women because uh you know they only had one income and often you know there was a gender gap there as well Mm -hmm. still is but uh, so they could eat three meals a day free and men could eat as well but were encouraged to donate and uh yeah the strathcona hotel where it started is uh it was at the location of what is now the manto museum oh no way yeah and uh so they, they stayed there for 10 days but then they got the boot uh it's 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 assumed that it was due to some political pressure that was applied on the hotel, on the owner. hotel owner yeah yeah exactly That's and then cool. they moved to the oxford hotel which is now solid gold strip club oh so it was all around that downtown area i guess people lived downtown back then yeah yep and then uh, it ended up at the royal albert which is also a wow so i don't actually know where the train car was flipped train car was flipped uh it's well it was flipped near the old city hall it's it's kind of just down in the exchange kind of near the uh near the board game cafe there is a there's a monument of a streetcar, which I'm sure you're aware of, and it's it's pretty near to there, but the old city hall has been torn down, but it was near there. I thought the old city hall was, like, more on Broadway by the law courts, or am I just out of my mind? Uh, or yeah, that's not my understanding. Okay, then I'm out of my mind. Um, it just there are look- some other cool-looking buildings there. It just looks like the same kind of architecture, I guess. That's probably why my brain went there. But they yeah, shouldn't they, have... Uh, oh, they messed that streetcar up. Did they? Yeah. 
How many people were there in that like big final mob? Um, I don't know. Several thousand. It's it's uh, estimated that there was thirty thousand involved, like overall thirty to thirty five thousand, and then if you include their families, uh, over one hundred thousand, which would would have been over half of the city's population. But as per like day to day, probably less than five thousand on the streets. I think there were some marches of ten thousand. That's still a lot at the time. Yeah, that's unreal. I mean, we've we've had numbers like that recently, like at the Black Lives Matter protest and uh, the uh, climate change, like uh, one in September last year. Um, but this was like a much more sustained and coordinated. They had a banner that said, uh, "We'll take our ten thousand against your 1,000 any day because there was a, a business lobby group called the Citizens Committee of 1,000, so they were kind of making a jab at that. That being said, the Citizens Committee of 1,000 only actually had around 34 members, but they were making it seem like they had more <laughs> support, and they, they were all businessmen. Uh, and the year, the year before, they called themselves the Citizens Committee of 100, so... Oh, so they're... Uh, not completely honest. Big into hyperbole, hyperboles. Yeah, it's funny because there were uh, there were thirty five known anarchists at the time in Winnipeg. Thirty. So they the, were. The, biz, the business leaders were technically more of a fringe group than the anarchists were. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. And they uh, took over. What are um, like what are some of the things that they accomplished by the strike? Other than... Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, that was one that I was really, really struggling with, uh, really looking for answers on, because uh, it's something I'm very interested in, something that I, you know, general strikes and strikes uh, are something that I've come to really believe in as a way of uh, enacting social justice. But when you're looking at the Winnipeg general strike, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, there are examples of really successful general strikes elsewhere and so coming to that realization was important to me because i want to in studying this history you know uh take another look at the importance of strikes and general strikes but the fact of the matter is that uh you know the winnipeg general strike came very close to making really really important change some historians say that it was the most significant attempt at social change in Canadian history. Uh, Ross McCormick says that. But in the end, they, yeah, they crushed the strike. The, you know, workers had to sign no, like, like no union pledges. Uh, there were blacklists. People had to move. Um, it was not, it was not a good scene. Uh, the kind of common narrative that, that you would find a lot at commemorative events. And I went to a lot of those because uh, just, you know. You're interested. I was, I was interested. But the kind of prevailing narrative there was the importance of the general strike was that it uh, resulted in uh, success for labor-affiliated political parties in the decades that, that followed. But... I just wrote a paper uh, in Kane Dimension kind of about this topic and uh, <clears throat> like the, the goal of the strike was not 
to, to later on be successful at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. The, the goal of the strike was to achieve collective bargaining, uh, to improve working conditions, and to, to increase wages. So, uh, and, and, you know, collective bargaining was eventually recognized. That's just the idea that uh, the employer has to recognize a union as a, as a bargaining agent rather than just dealing with each uh, employee individually. And, you know, workers right. want to do that because it increases their bargaining power. Employers don't want that because it increases their bargaining power. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but uh, the strike nonetheless did uh, increase uh, the uh, political power of left-wing parties. But what's interesting is in 1917, the left, the, the, the Western Canadian left put a ton of their efforts into organizing at, uh, you know, at the level of electoral politics and, and it didn't work. It was a flop. Uh, you know, there, there are some, you know, nuances to that, but point being that the general strike definitely did influence the degree with which the, the right wing and business leaders were willing to concede reforms because it really, really scared the shit out of them. Like there's one, there's one, uh, excerpt from the book called when the state trembled, when it says, uh, the business leaders in the citizens committee of 1000 genuinely feared or the, the feared that the collapse of civil society was upon them. So, you know, this was two years after the Russian revolution in, uh, uh, or the, or the 1917 revolution in Russia. So, you know, there was, there was reason to think that. So that's kind of why the, the employers went so hard to crush the strike. They thought they were dealing with Bolsheviks. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, there were Bolsheviks, but there were, there was like a rainbow of different leftists. You know, there was anarchists, communists, uh, labor socialists. There was bundists, like, etc. Social Democrats, laborists. People just wanted uh, to... Possiblists. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it goes on and on. There's many names. Uh, there's many names for a similar thing. Yeah, but uh, the the business leaders are definitely trying to invoke Bolshevism as kind of like a scare tactic. Do, um, do you think it had a global impact, like outside of Winnipeg? I think, uh, yeah, I think Antonio Gramsci wrote about it. But it, that was the kind of, uh, that was just, that you know, general strikes were being uh, enacted and the theory of the general strike was developing around the world at that time. Uh, and in some places it <coughs> succeeded and in some places it, uh, it's still practiced today and in other places it got crushed. So you look at France, uh, just this past year, there was a series of general strikes that lasted weeks, I think months even, um, regarding the pension reforms. Yeah. I saw that on the news. And, uh, the French are a different breed. Well, the, the syndicalism, uh, syndicalism was developed in, in France. Uh, I think it was first kind of popularized by an anarchist named Fernard Pelloutier. And uh, so let me see here. Yeah, six weeks of strikes this year. And uh, Dominique Rayen, who's a poli-sci prof at... Sciences Po 
so the, the the pension reforms were kind of tabled, but then so this uh, political scientist says, I I don't think I don't believe in the possibility of relaunching these reforms after COVID. It was difficult before, now it's even more difficult. It would be a little suicidal, I think. So yeah, it worked. Like uh, they they had strikes and protests for six weeks in France this year regarding the uh, pension reforms. And it caused uh, Emmanuel Macron to back off. Um, so capitalism hasn't really changed that much in hundreds of years. That's that's what I argue in this most recent paper is like, so the, the same tactics that worked 100 years ago, not in Winnipeg, it was attempted in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. but the same tactics that worked in France and Italy, uh, Spain, there was a there was a revolution that lasted three years based on syndicalist tactics. Uh, syndicalist tactics are kind of like general in, invoking general strikes. So those same tactics can apply today. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's not that we're weeks or months or years away from achieving that but if we if we don't start to try to build towards that we'll never get there and one of my favorite uh labor activists jane mclevy spoke at the ukrainian labor temple last year uh for the uh winnipeg general strike conference that took place at the winnipeg at the university of winnipeg and she was saying we need a general strike against climate change by 2030 to uh ensure that we don't all die in a climate catastrophe <laughs> yeah something has to be done and uh, no one seems to be do it uh doing it i just did i ask you how long did the general strike last for about six weeks it started with the building trades on may 1st and uh that's kind of like a it's called may day that's a historic day on the left uh, so May Day? Be a lot of event- yeah, like the first of, of May? On May 1st, yeah. And then it, uh, well, the general strike itself started on May 15th, but it uh, was in, it was called a sympathet- general sympathetic strike because they were striking in support of the building trades and metal trades workers. The metal trades workers started on May 2nd. And uh, what's really interesting is I think two thirds of those who struck in 1919 were non unionized. It's a staggering fact because they had to take on a, a significant degree of risk but i think there was only twelve thousand that were actually unionized so but uh, i guess that every, was that was sorry i guess everyone was suffering for sure and and there was there was kind of the the feeling in the air of like well let's give it a try you know whereas right. now it's a it's a harder one because people will say well we did try that and it it didn't work uh, versus in france it's like yeah let's have a general strike you know, let's have, it, let's have it against these pension reforms because there are there are more you know memories of, of successful general strikes are more readily available and the uh, French Revolution so yeah yeah for sure <laughs> yeah that's cultural culturally yeah surely is still uh, influence actually speaking of just a tidbit of a fact you know the word sabotage um uh-huh sabotage you know the word um it came from the french um people throwing their sabots wooden shoes into the industrial gears of the machines and nice. stopping all production yeah cool I don't know, just tidbit i might have to start wearing wooden shoes <laughs> <laughs> uh.
Uh, it could be a, it could come back could be a new look fuck yeah man um help you sabotage your workplace <laughs> or just throw your crocs into the gears um <laughs> wooden crocs so is there anything else you'd like to touch on anything else you're really interested in oh yeah I guess there's just one one thing I was meaning to mention is what's interesting uh also from the book uh, when the state trembled you talk about how the the i think they called them the metal masters like the people who owned the metalworks ironworks which are located just past the the uh, <clears throat> railway tracks on Higgins and Maine mm-hmm. Vulcan ironworks <clears throat> they were they were ready to to concede reforms to strikers like they were they were looking to renegotiate like uh you know to end the strike you know it's, it was the citizens committee of 1000 that said this is a bolshevik revolution this is going to you know if we concede now this will mean that a general strike is going to be something that we're going to have to be dealing with a lot more so they the very very small lobby group citizens committee of 34 <laughs> they uh they really tipped the scales against workers by by actually intervening and saying to the the employers that they needed to take a policy of non-negotiation and uh it makes sense that the uh the metalworks would be the willing to concede because that's skilled labor um yeah but also another point i wanted to just like say i don't know if this is true but wouldn't it make more sense that if the workers were happy it probably wouldn't happen again yeah yeah it's okay this is the other thing i was going to mention is in 1918 there was what they called the, the dress work dress rehearsal for the general strike which was a civic employees strike which uh was seen as quote a uh like overwhelming victory for the strikers so this now eight months later there's a general strike right so it's there was some reason to believe that this was a tactic that would be used frequently and uh at least so i mean i don't actually think that workplaces need bosses and i think that people that work uh that actually work in frontline services probably agree or would agree if they could like conceive of you know uh, rotating worker manager positions that are elected and easily recallable like certainly there needs to be some kind of coordination and organization but workplaces don't need bosses bosses need workers um so yeah like uh, i don't actually like i i support striking until we achieve democratic workplaces and the abolition of capitalism <laughs> you know uh you know even if even if the workers level of strife was reduced after 1919 if it was a victory i would still have been you know if i was there advocating for more general strikes so uh the the employers in 1919 were were correct in assuming this was going to be a a tactic that would be seen over and over again the tragedy is that they succeeded in crushing it and you know it was a really close call like it was a really it was close 
workers. This was the, the longest and most complete general strike in North American history. So it's, it's you know, my grandpa grew up in poverty. He lost his teeth at age 21. I really wonder what would have happened had the strike been successful, you know? Oh, so this is extra personal. It, it, it was really theoretical. And then, you know, I was just kind of making conversation with my grandpa one day. And he's like, yeah, I know the Vulcan Ironworks. I used to shoot pieces of metal at my friends with our slingshots in 19... 19- 30 back there and uh blah 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 but yeah he he grew up in pretty entrenched poverty and was malnourished and lost his teeth so wow. you know that's it it was like wow and those are the types of stories that kind of came out later on in life when he would i guess he had a little bit less uh ability to hold them in that's uh i've noticed that with my grandparents too they start to tell like it's actually kind of the same stories over and over again yeah, but yeah. it's like the ones that like traumatize them the most, I guess. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um. So where did they? Did they just use like a, the Canadian RCMP or something to? Um... <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, it was called the Royal Northwest Mounted Police. It later became the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I think there were soldiers stationed at the. Uh, Minto Barracks. That part, I, I'm... I was like, <coughs> you know, Royal Northwest Mounted Police, uh, possibly some soldiers. They might have been, like, soldiers, but in different uniforms, I can't remember. But there were also many special police known as specials. And so this is a really interesting... Okay. Uh, this is a really interesting part about the strike is the, uh, the mayor... Uh, in 1919, kind of abolished the police. Oh, because this is interesting. <laughs> like, because these the police were in support of the strike, and the police offered to go on strike as well. But the um, kind of organizing body of the strikers, the general the general strike committee, said, "No, no, like stay on and keep the peace." So that that was part of also what made the 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 business leaders nervous is like the police were taking orders from a strike committee so you know if you need the police to protect your your capital and private property and they're taking orders from non-socialists then yeah that can be discomforting so the special police the police were told to sign like a no strike pledge and they refused and then i think 89 percent of them were uh fired and then uh they hired a bunch of random you know often referred to as like thugs and stuff but just mercenaries replacement police with very little training but you know as far as abolishing the police goes (laughs) like firing 89 percent that's kind of a little bit like abolishing the police so i thought it would be an interesting thing to to talk about because that's you know obviously uh, something that's a lot uh, you know in the news a lot lately mm-hmm, yeah. the thing is that they didn't abolish it and replace it with like a harm reduction group it was they replaced it with like less trained more belligerent uh special police who had wagon spokes as billy clubs and some of them hauled those out and poured lead in it to make it harder 
lot. Who beat up strikers and uh, so just so uh, they 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 lost the police because they weren't reactionary enough. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. What a time. Um, yeah, and they and they paid the specials quite a bit more than they paid the regular police too. So there's always there's always money when protecting your empire is involved. There's always extra. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. They can always find the money to protect their uh, assets, but not to pay the workers. Exactly. I've always thought, like, I'm not educated on this subject that well, but I've always thought it's funny how um, employers don't realize that because they only pay you after you've done the job. They don't realize that they're incurring a debt towards you. They think that they're doing you a favor. Closed the restaurant because they couldn't deal with it. Well, and I think it's you know they're they're afraid like this is they wanna they wanna wrap this up here because it's I, I went to the picket line and I spoke with some of the with some of the strikers and it's like it's not really catching on on other at other other Stella's locations but you know I think it, the longer this goes on the the more of a for their brand it is but the other thing they were saying is a lot of the policies that Stella's implements are, are, are kind of tested at this Sherbrooke location so and it was I think it was the one of the first locations so it was just, the second location okay so they're just kind of saying like they 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 kind of see the managers most frequently like the offices are directly above that location and mm -hmm. just the the narrative at the other locations is that the, the strikers are causing issues blah 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 has nothing to do with the management and, and unfortunately a lot of the, the workers are accepting that at the other locations so you know the theory of the general strike would suggest you know and it, it's it's hard to do i've i've tried to organize workplaces organize within workplaces um but really the thing to do would be to get other Stellas locations on board as well and you know, have respected Stellas workers communicating with workers in different Stellas locations to try to make them realize that you know this is this is in their interest as well. Uh, because the fact that you know the management have so far kept the, the, the divide present is is an issue. I have a question. 
Um, I actually was wondering when you were going to bring up Stella's, but that aside, um, um, what's the difference between a, a co-op and a democratic-run workplace? Uh, I kind of use them interchangeably. Okay. Uh, like, there's different types of co-ops. Um, like, Mac, for instance, isn't necessarily my vision of a... There's, there's an, another one that's kind of screwed up, another story. Um, cause, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But just the idea is like, is, uh, you know, and I, you know in, in one of my former workplaces, we would be running the workplace, we would have managers that were, were just kind of irrelevant and trying to make themselves feel relevant. And so we would have to kind of, we would come up with, decisions to solve problems that would that were functional and then we would spend you know as much time as we did coming up with the solutions thinking okay how are we going to phrase this and pitch this to the managers to make them think it's their idea or like get them on board or like not offend their pride so that we can implement it so it was so efficient there's there's this assumption that you know co-ops are inefficient and like businesses are so abusive and hierarchical because it's more efficient that way I don't see that. I don't actually see it as more efficient. Uh, I see it as presenting incredible barriers to to conducting business or conducting one's affairs. Uh, but not everyone sees it like I do. There's um there's a lot of fear in a hierarchical, however you say it, uh, run business. Um, yeah, because yeah, sure. someone above you can get mad at you for no reason and kind of just get rid of you. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if it could possibly happen in a co-op. I think in a co-op you hold shares. Everyone holds part of the company, right? Yeah, the idea is uh, definitely to purchase it together. And, and in some ways they say it's, it makes a co-op more resilient than a uh, regular business because you can you have more um, people to draw on. And, and actually co-ops last a lot longer than small businesses do. You know, whenever you whenever you hear of a co-op closing, it's a big deal because you know people like to say, "Look, it didn't work." But small businesses close all the time, usually within six months or a year. You know, Mondragon closed after eighteen years, but that was eighteen years, and uh, uh, so that's a long time. Your, your initial question was, uh, "Oh yeah, well, it, it, there 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 are, there are definitely issues within co-ops too. Like, there's usually issues whenever human beings try to do anything together." Yeah, that's but true. Like, <laughs> when I when I worked at uh, yeah, hold on, I'll edit it out later. When you worked at okay. yeah, I can't I can't say the uh, name of my work. Okay, when you worked at whatever, I'll cut it out. Okay, thanks. Um, when I worked, right. So one 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 solution to these issues is is not to have bosses that you know hold the ability to end discussion and force a decision on someone rather than that you can just use that those funds to you know third-party mediation and, you know usually it, what i would observe is these issues you know certain issues were arising because of interpersonal politics mm-hmm. not because of anything to do with the actual policy at, at hand and so if, if you can address those earlier on before they become a hindrance to solving issues and, and going on about 
you know, helping people or whatever your whatever your occupation is, uh, then that's just as functional, if not more functional, than you know, allowing one boss to call the shots and end discussion and force something on an entire group. So you know, it, it's just that those things they take time. Mm-hmm. It takes time to do it right, but the idea is that eventually you're doing it right. Whereas in in these workplaces I've done, I, I've worked in, you know, we would be trying to to figure a complex problem out. It wouldn't take the allotted one hour that we had for the meeting, so the boss would force a decision on us, and then two months later we would be having the same discussion in another meeting because the solution didn't work. So you can either spend the time to do it right the first time, or you know, force it on without actually thinking it through, and then deal with it again in another subsequent staffing. So. My um my system of everything is just trying it and it not working and then it then fixing the problem. But that's just how I work, which is. But I've yeah, gotten good at fixing it's things. Just, it's just you know, uh, there's a lot less frustration if, as a group, you decide on something mm-hmm. and everyone's down with it, and then as a group you realize it doesn't work. Okay, so then it's you know it's someone's fault. But then if in, in a meeting someone's saying we should do it this way, and then someone says no, we're not doing it that way. Not because it doesn't make sense, but because I say so. Oh yeah. And then it doesn't work. Well, now when it doesn't work, everyone's upset with the person who said it because I say so. Yeah, and and in in a democracy, someone can't make those types of decisions unless they convince people, uh, which is you know that's that's what leadership is. So the idea that you lead based on your title and the arbitrary power that's afforded to you by a hierarchy. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a quote I read um, that, like, it's not the title that honors the man, but the man that honors the title. For sure. Um, also, I had a question. What you meant by interpersonal politics, is that just, like, people butting heads or people who get yeah. along? Yeah, and, like, you know, it's important to it's important to acknowledge that that can occur under any structure mm-hmm. because... That's often something that's used to say, like, this is why co-ops are inefficient. It's because interpersonal politics arise, and then you're having a two-hour debate about who takes out the garbage. And uh, the point is that in those instances, the issue is not that they have a non-hierarchical cooperative workplace. The issue is that they have a co-op that does not have an adequate... uh, interpersonal third-party mediation system in place like you know HR I've worked worked in uh, volunteer organizations like that so it's just I think it's it's one of those things that's that's the type of work that's totally invisible and you know people don't value it but if you don't value it then it causes all kinds of uh, of, uh, discord discord yeah dysfunction okay that's awkward and uh, so it's just, yeah. And, but when that happens in a hierarchical place, uh, organization, when when interpersonal issues develop, and then one party has executive power over another, that's when workplace bullying takes place and retaliation and, you know, the types of things that people have to endure that are extremely hard to prove. Extremely hard to prove that are happening to you. You can say, oh, you know, your boss can say, like, oh, no, I... I didn't do Something that. against you, that's just policy. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, you know, policy is it's swept aside because they like someone or vice versa, you know. 
that also that's a favoritism is never going to go away. It's, yeah, it's certainly not going to go away, but ideally in a democratic or consensus-based organization, it could, it could be addressed, like, it could be brought up, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, could request, you could request mediation with this person. No, good luck. Good luck requesting mediation with your boss. Like, who's gonna, who's gonna, who's going to oversee that mediation? Their boss? No. Because no. I've, I've, I have explored that territory, and birds of a feather flock together, and your boss's boss is gonna side with your boss. Mm-hmm. Um, would you consider yourself an idealist? Yeah, I mean, but also, you know, believing in the capitalist free market capitalist system is an ideal and so just because it's more entrenched and socially acceptable doesn't mean it's not also like you know, business bros are also idealists you're, you're absolutely right it's like <laughs> it's like going to a fraternity or something or, or not yeah fraternity that's the word mm-hmm. or essentially yeah or like a the masonic secret society they're idealists too I guess Business, like people who graduated from business that are doing super cool things and who are, uh, are genuine leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, certainly the culture in those schools can be a little bit problematic. But then again, on the left, there's a lot of problems too, so <laughs> it's just human beings. It's, there's, the, there's the X factor. Oh, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, that was a super, super great to get educated on that. And, um, yeah, yeah, this is nice. Thanks, man. It was really nice to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy rating your parents' fridge and Thanks, learning, yeah, learning yeah, stuff. I can't over. I can come here play piano at fourth bar. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen again, but... <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I can't wait to play piano again, in public, I mean. Um, yeah. All right, well, have a good day, and I'll see you in the... Far future, maybe, or nearer future. Okay, thanks, buddy. Love you. Yeah, take care. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. And that was local expert, almost, learning to be expert, uh, Riley, speaking about a large variety of subjects. And it was, I was kind of in over my head, but uh, I learned a lot. That was Keep Up Gay Interviews as Friends. Thanks for listening. You key cords.